0: James chapter 1, verse 2 through 8. We're in a sermon series on Sunday morning entitled Trials. And we're looking at how you and I can live victoriously, how you and I can live fruitfully in a world that is falling down, in a world that is falling apart, in a world that is falling away in a world that's filled with trials and tribulations and tears, in a world where there's no exceptions, exclusions, or escapees or exemptions, all of us, Christian and non-Christian, are going to face them. Somebody has wisely said there's only three kinds of people in this church this morning, or in any church, or in our world as a whole. Number one group are those that are in the middle of a trial right now. You're facing a trouble right now. Your pillow is stained with tears right now. You are struggling in the midst of pain. Some of you are there right now. But then there's others of us who are going into a trial We're going into a tribulation. We're going into a terror. We don't exactly know it. Right now we're high, wide, and handsome. We ain't got a care in the world. But one day very soon, maybe today, maybe tomorrow, next week or next month, we are going to run into something that is going to rock our soul. So those Some of us here today, those of us, are in a trial. Some of us are headed into a trial. We just don't know it. And then the third group is those of us who are coming out of a trial. By God's grace, we got out of it. We made it. And we ought to be thankful and praiseful to Him for it. I don't know what group you're in. I don't know if you're in the trial group, going into the trial group, or coming out of the trial group. But I can promise you, you will be in all three groups if you live long enough in this journey of life and faith. James chapter 1. I want us to focus on just verse 2, although we'll look at other verses. James says, My brethren, I want you to focus on every single word in verse 2. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into divers temptations. My brothers and sisters in Christ, count it all joy when you fall into various trials and tribulations and terrors. I heard the story about two men who were entrepreneurs and they wanted to make some quick cash and so they decided they were going to get involved in a government program that paid them for capturing wolves alive. For each wolf that they could catch and turn in that was alive, they would get 1,000 dollars. So they go out and search for wolves. They go out into the backlands. They climb the steep hills. They cross the cold and deep waters. They push through the heavy thicket with stickers. They walk over 15 miles and they do all of that, ladies and gentlemen, in one day. But they don't find one single wolf. Now these are city slickers. They're not country, fellas. And so they're tuckered out, to use an old country word. And so as the day is drawing to a close, they're tired, they're weary, they're cold, they're wet. So they just decide to pitch their tent, get in their sleeping bag, and go to sleep. Well, suddenly, in the dead of the night, several hours later, one of the men, one of the entrepreneurs, wakes up and he sees something rather interesting. He sees a pack of about 30 wolves. Their eyes are lit up like flaming fire, and they've lifted their lip like Elvis, and they got a little snarl showing their teeth, long pointed teeth. And he is surprised, to say the least. So he reaches over to his friend and he taps him. He nudges him. And he says, wake up, wake up. We have struck it rich. You know, maybe some of you this morning feel like you've struck it rich in regard to pressures and pains and problems. And maybe some of you this morning feel like you're surrounded by a pack of troubles and trials and terrors. Maybe some of you here right now are asking the three big why questions that everybody asks when they're going through difficult times. Why me? Why this? And why now? Maybe right now you are sitting here looking at me with a smile on your face but you're angry with God. You blame God for this. Maybe you're angry with other people. Maybe you're even angry with yourself. Maybe you're just angry with life in general. Maybe everything in you wants to give up, go away, and disappear. Maybe that's where you're at. Well, if that's where you're at this morning, I've got a good word for you. If you're not there this morning, you better still pay attention because I promise you, listen to your pastor, you one day will be there. And James has a word for us beginning with verse 2. Now, each word that's found in the Bible is not there by accident or coincidence. The Bible is an inspired book. God wrote the book. And everything in it's true. And so notice what James begins, this letter he's writing to the Christian people of his day. He says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into divers temptations. Now, let's break that down real quick. Because I think in breaking it down, you're going to have a better understanding of what he's communicating to these that are going through difficulties. To us who is going through difficulties. Notice the phrase, if you would, in verse 2, that says, count it. Count it. Okay? That phrase, "counted" is interesting. It comes from a Greek word that means to engage your mind. To engage your thoughts. Not to engage your heart. Not to engage your feelings. But to engage everything that you possess from the neck up. To engage your mind. And it means to take your mind and begin to reason what's going on in your life. Where is it taking you what will be the final conclusion of it all the whole idea is to calculate your trials to weigh your troubles to ponder your terrors to to think about them you see when people are going through difficult days they tend to be more emotional and god does not want us to be emotional when it comes to things like this He wants us to be cerebral. He wants us to think. He wants us to see that the pains and the pressures and the problems that we may be going through, they have a purpose. Our pain has a purpose. Our problems has a purpose. Our pressures that we feel upon us have a purpose. And it's a threefold purpose. He wants us to know that, to engage our mind on the purpose, not the pain. What is the purpose? The purpose, first of all, is to glorify Him. Why why are you here today? To glorify God. Why am I here today? To glorify God. Why are we here today? To glorify God. Why do we have life right now? Why has God given us breath? To glorify God. The chief purpose of man is to what? Glorify God. It's not about me. It's about God. And my purpose in life is to glorify Him, to bring Him honor, to bring Him glory. And so whatever we go through, that's a purpose. But there's another purpose, and it's to be witnesses to others. Because as we go through life, we're not islands. We're part of a community. We're not lone rangers. We're part of a family. And everything that I say affects other people everything that I do affects other people, and not just me, but you as well. And so when we're going through trials and tribulations, we've got a world that's looking at us. They want to see what we're doing with it. And however we respond to it, we're either making stepping stones to bring them to Jesus, or we're creating stumbling blocks to keep them away. And then the third purpose, that we're supposed to be engaging our mind with and thinking about and pondering about and evaluating and reasoning with is that God is using whatever we're facing in life to grow us. We get comfortable sometimes. And when you get comfortable, what do you do? Some of you know this very well. Some of you get mighty comfortable. When we get spiritually comfortable, we just kind of go to sleep. And so what God will do is bring things into our life to stir us up a little bit, to get us moving, to get the blood, spiritual blood flowing again. Because God's not content that we stay where we're at. God keeps wanting to move us along. God's not content that we be like Jesus now. He wants us to be like Jesus tomorrow and even more like Jesus tomorrow. So, so what happens is this. James says, count it. Whenever you find yourself in a trial or a tribulation or or something that's terrifying to you, what do you do? Right there. You start thinking about, how can I use this to glorify God? How can I use this to be a witness to people that I want to see come to Jesus? How can I use this to transform me and to grow me that I can be better for the Lord today than I was yesterday? And when that happens, God will give us something that we're going to talk about in just a second, but I'll make mention of it. He gives us joy. Joy. How in the world can somebody have joy who's standing at a gravesite saying goodbye to a loved one? How can somebody have joy when they're looking at their home that they spent many years and money, much money investing in now filled with trees and water. How can anybody have joy when they're visiting their son or their daughter or their grandchild in the penitentiary? How can anybody have joy when you leave the doctor's office and you're told that you have cancer? It's because you understand that God is at work and there's a purpose to it all. There's a sense to this suffering. There's a plan and a purpose behind the pain. You can't see it when you're looking this way. You can only see it when you're looking this way. I coached football for many years, and I watched many a football game from the sideline, ground level. Now, when you watch a football game from the sideline, ground level, particularly if you don't know the game very well, what do you see? (laughs) Remember, you're looking just like this. What you look at is 22 players running around. They don't look like they know what in the world they're doing. They're acting like chickens with their head cut off. They're just running around, blocking somebody, hitting somebody, tackling somebody. It just looks like craziness. It looks like pandemonium. I mean, it it doesn't look like there's any mastermind behind it all. That's because you're looking at it this way. But I also coach football not only from the sideline. Opportunity sometimes came to be up in the press box, the coach's box. Up there, you're not looking this way. You're looking down at the field. The Goodyear Blimp picture many of you see on TV. And what you see is something that's amazing. You see that those 11 men who make up the offense, they know exactly what they're doing. They've been coached, they've been prepared to be in a certain position to carry out a certain responsibility. That they they have been trained, they've been taught, they have a plan, they have a purpose and that's move the ball down the field. You'll also notice on the other side of the ball, there's 11 men that play defense, and they likewise are lined up in a planned place with a planned purpose. They know exactly what they're doing. They know exactly how they want to do it. And their objective, their goal in it all is to stop the offense. And then when the play starts, it is a thing of, it is just something beautiful to behold. Everything seems to be so choreographed. Ordained and orchestrated as as all these people that at ground level look so confusing up here look so masterful. When you respond to trials and troubles with just this, your heart, emotion, then you're looking at everything this way and it looks chaotic. What in the world's God doing? Everybody knows what's going on. But when you start using this God elevates you off the ground spiritually and allows you to see it from his perspective. And you stand back and you say, wow, what a coach the Lord is. He's got everybody in place. He's got everybody with a purpose. He's got, he's doing everything in a way that makes perfect sense now to accomplish his goals. Count it. Engage the mind. Think like God. See things the way God sees it. Understand His purposes. But then notice He also gives us the word joy in verse 2. Now this word joy is an interesting word. It really means to be well with your soul. It's a word that parallels peace. Peace and joy often go together like ham and eggs. And this word joy here really means it's okay, a contentment, a wellness of one's being. Now, sometimes we get joy and happiness mixed up. You can have happiness without knowing Jesus, but you can't have joy without knowing Jesus. You see, happiness is from the outside in. If I know this person, if I get this thing, if I do this, if I do that, then it makes me happy. It's based on outward circumstance. Good circumstances make me happy. Bad circumstances make me sad. But joy does not come from the outside in. It comes from the inside out. Joy comes from Jesus. It doesn't matter what situation you're in doesn't matter what circumstance you're in, doesn't matter what you're facing today, doesn't matter. You can have His joy. And His joy is based on understanding. Remember? It's based on understanding. I understand what God's doing. I understand the purposes in which He's doing it. I understand that I have a place on this team and that he's carrying out my my responsibilities within me, that I can have joy. Joy comes when you understand the will of God for your life and the word of God in your life. Joy has telescopic vision. (laughs) Joy is Superman. Superman could see things far away. Happiness can only see the moment. Joy sees the future. Joy says, I don't understand all that's happening right now, but I know that in the future it will be well. Joy is conspicuous. People who have joy, you can see it in them. You may not be able to explain it, but you can't deny it. And joy is contagious. When you're around somebody that has joy, you're like a magnet. They're just drawn to you. And joy gives endurance, and joy gives bravery. The joy of the Lord is my strength. The joy of the Lord is my, is my bravery and my courage. As you know, I like history. I like military history. I particularly like World War II military history. And by the way, if you served our country, thank you for your service. In World War II, our U.S. Marines were asked to do something. Admiral Nimitz, General MacArthur got together and decided the best way to defeat the Japanese was to take their strongholds one by one through a string of islands that were in the Pacific. As they captured each island, that would move them closer and closer to Japan where hopefully the war would end, and it did. They chose the United States Marines because they have uh, their 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 tactics include not just land but sea. And what they decided to do was ask the Marines to take Guadalcanal, to take Tarawa, to take Saipan, to take Iwo Jima, and a lot of other little islands in between as they moved toward the main island of Japan. Now, these Marines, most of them were under 21 years of age. And what they were asked to do, ladies and gentlemen, was to leave the big naval ships that carried them and get in landing craft. These landing craft would travel from several miles out, hopefully dropping the Marines off in water that would be probably chest deep and then they would proceed across the wide open beach to engage the enemy that was waiting on them. But it didn't always work out that way. Sometimes those marines and those landing craft, before they ever got to the beach, were blown out of the water as the Japanese gunners zeroed in on them and they had no defense. And when the landing craft that were filled with those marines did get close and let them out, sometimes the water wasn't the exact depth they were supposed to be. And many of those young men, heavy laden with 80 to 100 pounds of gear, went to the bottom and drowned. And then those who did manage to get to the beach, the shoreline, they had 50 to 100 yards sometimes of wide open beach no shrubbery no fortifications nothing just run if you will and the enemy sitting there with every weapon imaginable shooting at them point blank hundreds and thousands of young marines would die in this island hopping battles How would you feel if you were one of those Marines? Knowing that the moment that landing craft door opens, your chances of coming back to your loved ones is probably very little. Except coming back in a body bag. Why did they do it? According to the testimonies of some of those young Marines that I was reading about in a book they realized that their sacrifice was necessary if the war was to be won. They didn't see themselves. They saw freedom. They didn't see the sacrifice they were about to make. They saw the ultimate victory. And that gave them joy. As strange as it sounds, they had a joy. And from that joy came a courage that allowed them to be bloodied and battered and many of them to die. That's what the Christian life is, ladies and gentlemen. God gives joy when we can see, not just here. Not just my cancer, not just my debt, not just my house is destroyed, not just my loved one has died, not just my grandchild's in jail, but we can see that beyond this there's something else. We have telescopic vision. We see that all things will work together for the good for them that love the Lord and are called according to His purpose. How do you have that kind of joy? By keeping all of it here. Not there. Centered here, it goes to here. Notice also he uses the word brethren in verse 2. Brethren means fellow believers. As I've told you many times, I hope you don't get tired of me saying it. Christians are going to suffer. Christians are going to have trials and tribulations. Christians are going to have pain and problems. You say, Pastor, I love Jesus and I'm faithful to Jesus. I'm glad you are, but that's not going to give you a pass out of it. There's no get out of trouble cards that God gives. In fact, the most faithful and true servants of God usually will find themselves having the greatest problems and the greatest pains and the greatest pressures. David was called a man after God's own heart. But he spent most of his teenage years and the young years of his manhood running from a madman and a murderer called Saul. The best years of his life, he was a fugitive. And Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet. He spent more time in jail than Al Capone did just because he told people the truth and they didn't want to hear it. Peter was crucified upside down. Paul had some of the heaviest burdens any man has ever carried in the Christian life. I was thinking about my mentors, Jim Wilson and Bill Bachman. Bill Bachman got cancer and died and is now in heaven. And Jim Wilson, who's who's preached around the world, the son of T.W. Wilson. He's part of the Graham team. His life over the last ten years has been filled with nothing but problems and pains. And Why? Think about Corey ten Boom, one of the greatest ladies of the 20th century. And yet she spent a portion of her life in a German concentration camp. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, a Russian spokesman for Christ spent part of his life in Siberia, the Russian gulag, the Russian death camp. And even Jesus himself, he suffered as nobody has suffered. Even there. Gold is not purified unless there's fire. Diamonds are not transformed from coal unless there's pressure. If your prayer is, God, I want to be great for you, batten down the hatches. Because that greatness is going to come with a price. Pain and suffering and trials and troubles and tears. And notice he also talks about diverse temptations. This is just a fancy word for various trials. Trials can come with many different names. For some of us, those trials will be physical, others mental, some emotional, others spiritual. Some will be financial, some will be social, some will be legal. I don't know what kind of trials you're going to go through. You might go through every single one of them, but you're going to go through them. You didn't realize verse 2 had so much in there, did you? Now, what I'd like to do before we move on from verse 2 and close out with some very important things is I'd like to now read from you verse 2 from the Jim Palmer Amplified Version of the Bible. Okay? I'm going to clarify it, hopefully a little bit more better for you. Let's put it all together, verse 2. Christians... Those of you who know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. Those of you that are washed in the blood and clothed in the robe of righteousness. Those of you that are heaven-born and heaven-bound. Those of you that are faithful to Christ. Christians, you are going to have, not might have, you are going to have troubles and trials and tears. All of you, no exception. Your pains and your problems that you're going to have could be one. They could be many. They could last for a short time. They could last for your lifetime. They could have one particular name or they could have many particular names. But in all of these things, you can have joy in your heart Because you have understanding in your mind that God has a purpose and he's fulfilling that purpose in you and through you for his glory, for the good of others, and for your own growth. That's the translation. Now, as we close out this message, in verses 3 through 5, James is going to talk about what this does to us as we're going through it. What do you get out of this, Pastor? What what do we get out of this sweat, blood, and tears? What do we get out of these pain, problems, and pressures? What do we get out of these trials and tribulations and tears? What what do we get out of it? Well, we learn we get three things at least. Verse 3 says... Knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh what? Say that word. Patience. Somebody said, don't pray for patience. You know what you're going to get. Well, you're going to get it anyway whether you pay for it or not. But this word patience doesn't mean the ability to tolerate something. This word patience means the ability to endure. Stamina for the to finish the course, to to finish the race that's before you. You see, whenever you have a problem, whenever you have a difficulty, they talk to you. Do you know problems talk? Those of you who have them know that they do. What does problems say to you? Quit? Drop out? Give up? Leave? Run? Complain? Grizzle, gripe, accuse, attack. That's the words that problems speak to us. But God doesn't want us to listen to the problems. God wants us to listen to Him. You see, problems will talk to these two ears. God speaks to this one. And what does God say? God says, when problems come and they're going to come, stay the course and finish the race. Don't throw in the towel. Don't give up. Don't give in. Don't give out. Just continue onward. Just continue onward. In time, God will bring you out of what you're going through and put your feet back on solid ground. Heard the story about a farmer who had a dog, and the dog was running around in the field but fell into an old well hole. Well, the farmer came and he saw the dog was about 20 feet down in the hole. Well, the well didn't give any water, and the dog was no good for nothing anyway. So the farmer said, I'm I'm through with both of them. He said, I'm just going to cover them up. So the old farmer got a shovel and began throwing dirt into the well where the dog was. Well, the dog's down in the well hole, 20 feet down. And dirt is hitting the dog in the head, hitting him on the back. He shakes the dirt off his head. He shakes it off his back. And he starts pounding it down. Well, he notices something. The dog's a pretty smart dog. He's got a Ph.D., I think. But he notices as that dirt is falling off his head and on his back, and he's sticking his little paws and pounding it down, he notices that he's inching up a little bit. And the old farmer, he can't see nothing. He just keeps throwing dirt into the hole. Well, every time a shovel of dirt hits the dog, he shakes it off. Takes his paws, pounds it down, and pretty soon that 20 feet becomes what? 19 feet, 18 feet, 17 feet, 16 feet. Fido is going up and up and up. And after two hours of throwing dirt into the well, guess what? The farmer fills up the well, but the dog walks out. That's what God wants to do with us. You may say you're in the bottom of the well. Well, listen, God's throwing dirt your way. He wants you to take that dirt, pound it down, and let him elevate you on out of this thing. He will. It's all about stamina. It's all about endurance. It's all about not giving up. Just keep going. Then James says that God uses these trials and tribulations in verse 4 to transform us. All that fancy wording in verse 4 just means transformation. To have patience in a perfect work. That means mature. That you may be mature and full in wanting nothing. God is in the transforming business. We're not. He is. And he's constantly transforming things from where it's at to make them better. I know some of you go to the gym. Some of you maybe ought to go to the gym. <laughs> you say, who are you talking about? Well, I'm just talking. <laughs> If you walk into the gym, <laughs> I don't know why I said that. <laughs> if you walk into the gym and you're a 90-pound weak link, I mean, you, you get sand kicked in your face on the beach. If you walk into the gym and you say, listen, I'm a 90-pound weakling," you go into workout anytime, and you say, I want to transform myself from a 90-pound weak link to a 200-pound of strapping muscles, a strong man. Well, Kevin's going to sit down with you. And he's going to say, well, this is the plan how to do that. You're going to have to come in here three to five times a week. You're going to have to be on a program of blood, sweat, and tears. You're going to have to push this weight. You're going to have to work these machines. You're going to have to get on these cardio uh, machines and and, and build yourself up. It's not going to be easy. It's going to be painful. You're going to have to eat a certain way. You're going to have to give up this and give up that. But if you do it, you will notice that 90-pound wink link body that looks like a skeleton is going to be transformed over a period of time into being a muscular body that's firm and fit. People aren't even going to think that was you. Do you see what God does with us? God takes the trials and the tribulations, and if we will respond to them here and here, he takes a 90-pound spiritual wink link that looks anemic and is anemic, and he transforms us into something that has muscle, something that has strength, something that just really amazes people what he can do. And then one other thing happens now, and we're closing. You say, why why does God do that, Pastor? Well he, he He wants to transform you. He wants to show you that you have something in you that's not a quitter. Many of us are just quit. God says, you're not a quitter. Don't quit on me. I want you to work through this. And then lastly, he gives us wisdom. Verse 5 is one of the most misunderstood verses in the Bible. Because the wisdom that is being spoken about here, Is the wisdom to understand, count it, to understand what God's purposes are as I'm going through and going toward wherever He's leading me. That's what the wisdom is. It's not just any wisdom, it's the wisdom to say, Lord, I don't understand while I'm having these trials and tribulations, I don't understand while I'm having these pain and problems. Lord, I don't understand. I don't understand. But Lord, help me to understand. Fill my mind with your wisdom. Fill my mind with your discernment. Fill my mind with your logic and your reason and your comprehension. Help me to see things not from ground level but from the upward level. Help me to understand that there's purposes in all of this and that everything's going to be okay. And you know something? He will give you that kind of wisdom. He's not a God to leave you in the dark. He will show you in the light what He's doing. Many years ago, a theologian was asked, why do the God's people suffer? And you know what he said? Because they're the only ones who can take it. How does the world, those, those of you who are not Christians, how do you handle problems? Jack Daniels How do people without Jesus handle problems? How do they handle it? They just zone out Or they run, they leave their marriage, they leave their church, or they leave anything that they have just to get away. Sadly, some of them even. That's how the world deals with problems. And we're going to see more and more of that, ladies and gentlemen, as our world is falling apart before our very eyes. But we in Christ, we don't have to handle it that way. We can have the wisdom, we can have the joy, and we can have the understanding that what we're going through is making a difference now and will make a difference for eternity. In closing, W.E. Sangster was a pastor in Great Britain many years ago. In fact, he was the pastor of a church in Great uh, England during World War II. He was to the church, many people said, what Winston Churchill was to the nation. Winston Churchill was a a dogged, determined man to lead Britain to victory. And W.E. Sangster was a dogged, determined pastor to to lead his people in the dark days of World War II. Well, after the war, W.E. Sangster contacted a disease that began to shut his body down. He had already experienced a lot of headaches and heartaches with his family and with his situation through the years. He's a man who was very accustomed to pain and problems. But as he was ending the end of his life and his pastorate, this progressive disease began to affect his entire body. It began to shut his body down. It got so bad that just before he was to leave this world, he could only move two fingers. That's it. His body was solid, it was still, it would not respond anymore, inwardly or outwardly, he had two fingers to play with. But I want to share with you in, in the final notes of this sermon what he wrote down before this ever happened, of what he was going to ask God to allow him to be and to do if he ever faced something like this. You see, God was even preparing him then for something. Can I give you his four things that he said he would do? First of all, he said, I will not complain. I will not complain. I will be pleasant. I will be positive. I will be optimistic. I will be praiseful. I will be encouraging. I will be inspiring. I can be all of that. I'm not going to complain. Secondly said, I will not give up. I decided to follow Jesus. I'm not turning back. I'm not a fair weather fan. I'm not a sunshine patriot. When I made my decision to follow Jesus, it will be until even there. He said, I will not complain, number one. I will not give up, number two. I will count my blessings, number three. I will count my blessings. I'm not going to dwell on the sadness. I'm not going to dwell on the suffering. I'm not going to dwell on the sorrow. I'm going to dwell on the blessings of God. I complained because I had no shoes till I saw a man who had no feet. There's a blessing in everything if you'll look for it. And then he said, lastly, I ask you, Lord, to help me make a difference. I don't want to just go through all of this and not make any difference. So if I just have two fingers that I can move, may those two fingers minister to somebody. Make a difference. I don't know what you're going through this morning. But maybe it would be a good time right now Take stock. And ask God to give you the wisdom to know some things that you need to know right here. Ask God that He might take when He gives you that wisdom, give you joy right here. That with that joy, He would give you transformation. With that joy, He'll give you courage. With that joy, He'll give you endurance. With that joy, you will know that you are going to make a difference wherever you're at on the journey of life and faith. Maybe you need to write down some resolutions and put them in the back of your Bible and say, next time, Lord, I go through anything, remind me of these things and let me read them. Let me read them. Heads are bowed and I say,